Chapter 4 We set out the next morning toward the lake where Dylan had gone for water. By then, the heat was unbelievable. It seeped up through the uneven mounds of already hardening lava under our feet, and the ash cloud above us held it in like a blanket. Of course, heat rises, so flying was out of the question. The least boiling place was on the ground. We were being slow-cooked like bird kids do, and I was the bitter onion. So mad at Dylan, I could spit. Most of us were doing okay regulating our body temperature. Mutant genes, etc., etc. But poor Aquila was looking a little rough. Her tongue hung out of the side of her mouth, but there was none of her signature drool, and she was panting super loud. Are you alright, my darling? Tuttle asked, trotting alongside her. Aquila whined, and he jumped to lick her face a few times. That was just about the most real, dog-like thing I'd ever seen Total do. And I'll be honest, it kind of freaked me out. When Dylan stops being an idiot and shows up with the water jugs, everything will be fine, I said loudly. Despite our inborn sense of direction, I had no idea where we were. All landmarks were gone. Even the forested tree stumps had disappeared under the rivers of gray deposits. Finally, we stumbled on the lake. But it wasn't the blue thermal pool we remembered. A thick, gray film covered the surface, broken only by the hundreds or thousands of silvery dead fish bobbing through it. The cloud of black flies hovering over them was even thicker than the ash. Well, we might as well eat them before they rot. Gezi grabbed a silvery floater, brushed off the ash as best as he could, and bit into the side. Then he looked up in surprise, his face as dirty and gray as the water. Hey, it's cooked! One by one, we grabbed a cooked fish right out of the still warm water, brushed off the ash, and ate our fill. One downside of our avian genes was a lightning-fast metabolism that meant we were nearly always hungry. A little farther on, we saw it. Our precious stockpile of water was untouched, the jugs covered with ash, but intact. We weren't going to die of thirst. At least not yet. Luck loves maximum ride, I thought cupping my hand so Aquila could drink. But then, my heart plummeted. If the jugs hadn't been moved, it could only mean one thing. Dylan hadn't even made it this far. For hours, we stayed close to the shore, where the ash was less dense, and took turns flying through the debris to search the cliffs. But the volcano was still pumping black smoke, and the air was getting harder to breathe. I was bent over after one of these missions, hacking up some blood, and wondering if my fast healing ability included my guts, when I spotted a charred gray knob poking out of the rubble. Another cave bone, I sighed. Looks kind of femery. That's how we had known the island's underwater tunnels had collapsed after the apocalyptic meteor. The corpses had started washing up on the shore. We were still finding them, almost three months later. I didn't know if any of the bones had belonged to my mother or my half-sister. How would I even be able to tell? Not necessarily. Feng's lips pressed together. I held it up. Though charred, it was totally a human femur. Gazi shook his head. It's burned. We don't know how old it is. The lava would have done that if it had been a cave corpse, or someone more recently, like... Yesterday. I was having trouble swallowing, trouble breathing. Let's go back to the cave, Nudge said gently. We can try another path. I whirled around. Angel, try to tap into Dylan's thoughts. He's got to be somewhere. He's just hiding, or looking for us. I'm sure he's nearby. Angel looked away. Ig, can't you smell him or something? Iggy leaned heavily against a rock. 
Flakes of ash fell from his white blonde hair when he shook his head. Though his eyes were unseeing, they were full of pity. It's not him, I insisted, kicking ash back over the bones. It's like Dylan's cognitive connection just stopped, Angel said finally. Like with your mom and Ella. We never found their bodies. My jaw tightened. We don't know what happened to them, just like we don't know what happened here. It was getting harder to say his name. Everything is dead, Max. Angel's tone was firm. Everything except us. No. I wanted to shake her. Guys. I looked down the beach. At first, I couldn't make out what Fang was holding. At first, I couldn't make out what Fang was holding. It was so black and warped. Then he turned it over, and I saw a tiny flash of color. That spot of bright green, a shade Dylan loved, that none of us had seen since the last of the trees had died, was enough to buckle my knees, and enough to force out the awful, wounded sob that had been building in my chest all day. Because that burned to cinders object, Fang cradled in his hand, was one of Dylan's size 12 sneakers. Chapter 5 I watched the shadow of our V moving across the water hundreds of feet below. One dog in a harness, one bird kid short on the right side, and clutched the charred sneaker tighter to my chest as my wings carried me. We couldn't give Dylan a 12-gun salute, or even a funeral. At least we can give him one last flight. I banked left, and the flock fell in line behind me, following like an extension of my own body. Ahead of us, sunlight peeked through the eerie rainbow of color that had illuminated the sky since D-Day. Below us, the water churned with the rough waves left over from the tsunami, and a chain of volcanoes rose from the depths of the ocean. Their combined cloud of ash was racing to cover everything, from the pink cliffs of the islands to the white feathers of angels' wings. I'd thought flying would make me feel better, like it always had, wind rustling my hair and muting my thoughts as I soared into the open. No sounds, no obstacles, just the ocean before us, and sky all around. Freedom. Growing up in a cage really makes you appreciate open spaces. But it had been a while since I'd seen the world this way, and taken stock of all we'd lost. Cities. People. The grief felt like a cold, hard knot in the center of me, pulling me down, down, into all that gray water. I felt a hand on my left shoulder, and sensed Fang's dark figure just outside my peripheral vision. You okay? I nodded and slowed down, realizing we'd been flying for probably half a day. I just wanted to get ahead of the cloud, to lay Dylan to rest under a clear sky, but the ash was moving too fast. I held the shoe out, and the kids hovered in a circle. It was just a shoe, just a piece of half-melted rubber. I took a breath. You have to do it. Do it for the flock. Goodbye, Dylan, I whispered. Goodbye, my flock echoed. Then I opened my fingers, just like that. As I watched the sneaker plummet, I remembered Dylan falling from the roof when I'd taught him to fly, barely a year ago. The feeling of his body beside mine that night we took refuge in the desert. The treehouse that he'd made just for me. His last words. I'll catch up. Wasn't he always trying to catch up with me? I drew a shaky breath. No. I dove hard, reaching toward the chunk of blackened rubber. But I was too late. 
and I watched the waves swallow up all that remained of Dylan. I flipped and shot back into the sky, angry tears streaming down my face. He was just one more person who had fallen beyond my reach, like my mom and Ella. I refused to believe it, even when angels stopped hearing their thoughts from the underground caves, even when the months had passed without any sign of life other than us. I couldn't accept that we were all alone. Their bodies could still be there, somewhere. Let's turn back, I shouted over my shoulder. Feng looked alarmed. You want to go back to the island? It's our home. My words were thick, threatening another waterfall. Their home. He flew up next to my ear. Max, it's a wasteland, he said urgently. And even if we could somehow breathe the air, we'll never make it back before nightfall. It doesn't... Fence the rolls, Max. Angel's voice in my head. I felt a pressure change a couple miles back. I'm pretty sure we passed land to the west. Iggy offered from my other side. Despite his blindness, or because of it, his other senses were sharper than razors. It might be worth checking out. We'd passed other islands before, but most were tiny. No shelter, no fresh water. When we reached the one Iggy had felt, it was different. Bigger. We couldn't even see where it ended. Actually, we couldn't see much. Three active volcanoes just off the coast were spewing towers of lava and ash. It made us feel right at home. Not. It was a big detour to get around them, but once we were closer to the huge island, we saw square cliffs in the distance, spaced like jack-o'-lantern teeth. And near the water's edge, a blur of something big and white and rectangular, like sails billowing in the wind. Is that a ship? My heart sped up. Are there people here? Alive? No, it's... Nudge hesitated. I think it's the Sydney Opera House. I spun around to stare at her. How do you even know what that looks like? Because I know things, she replied curtly. More than you think I do. And then... Haven't you ever seen Finding Nemo? I cackled. That is not seriously what you're basing. Actually... I think I'd recognize the pinnacle of modern architecture, Tuttle said. And that is not... I tuned him out, really studying the shoreline. I saw the skeletal remains of a bridge in the surrounding harbor, and the white blur started to look more like a building than a boat. But it didn't make any sense. Sydney, Australia was a huge city. I worked my wings harder, squinting through the ash to see inland. That would mean those weird cliffs... Angel nodded. Following my thought, they're skyscrapers. Chapter 6 Sydney was not the booming metropolis we had heard of. In fact, it was pretty much uninhabitable. Huge waves crashed through the city, flowing through angular valleys created by buildings. Abandoned cars bobbed like bath toys in the current before they were tossed against the salt-crusted, crumbling skyscrapers. The foam sprayed three flights up. There were no people anywhere, dead or alive. Where do you think everyone went? Nudge asked. Maybe they're all at the opera, I said dryly. Nudge grinned. I told you I knew what I was talking about. Seriously though, Max, shelter? I looked at Iggy's pale, drawn face and the circles underneath Angel's eyes. I saw the salt caked on Nudge's parched lips. 
I heard the sharpness in Gazi's cough and realized Akila had barely made a sound since we'd left. Despite their jokes, my flock was just about at its breaking point. I felt the exhaustion settle into my own body. What are you proposing? Feng nodded upward. I say we break into a penthouse suite. Nudge squealed, clapping her hands. And it was settled. If you want to know how seriously bad weather can get, try to flow through it, like, without a plane. The falling volcanic ash mixed with the ocean spray, forming a gritty mud that pelted us. All visible surfaces were coated in a concrete-like sludge, and the buildings looked like enormous, crumbling gravestones. And my little flock? We look like gargoyles, dragging ourselves up the side of a tall skyscraper. Our wings grew heavier and heavier, coated with what soon felt like stucco. But we moved them up and down, up and down, and clung to the ledges for dear life. At the very top, Nudge's deft fingers brushed against the metal lock, and easy peasy, we were in. It was an office, not the luxury apartment I'd been hoping for, but it was dry and surprisingly well-preserved. The halls were still lined with glass frame posters that said things like, Let it flow, and Attitude makes a big difference. I rolled my eyes and knocked that last one off the wall. Angel curled up under a desk, folding her crusty wings beneath her. Forget mind reading. That was her true talent. That kid could sleep anywhere. Me? I was more interested in tracking down some chow. That lava-cooked, acidic fish was the last thing I'd eaten, and my stomach wrenched at the memory. Feng and Gazi followed me on the search for a kitchenette, ever the eager consumers. Just as I was shaking the box of aged, crumbled crackers into my mouth, and thinking we made out pretty well considering, you know, the apocalypse, I heard a low, lingering growl. Jeez, Gazman. I scrunched up my nose, bracing for the stench to hit. But Gazzy held up his hands. Not me. Max, get out of there! Angel's voice. None of us ever question a warning. In a split second, I had dropped the cracker box, signaled Gazzy and Fang, and rushed to the door. It was already too late. The doorway was full of snarling creatures, trying to get through at the same time. To us. What the heck are they? Gazzy breathed, jumping onto the kitchenette table and assuming a fighting stance. Fang and I both leaped onto the counter, muscles tensed, adrenaline pumping. No idea, I murmured. Not erasers, not flyboys, not anything I've ever seen. They were dog-like, but huge. Easily three times the size of a Great Dane, but with a bulldog's heavy muscled build and a mastiff's powerful snapping jaws. Their long-fanged mouths were already slavering in anticipation of a bird-kid breakfast. And we were trapped. Chapter 7 You've got to be freaking kidding me, I snarled. Are those hyenas? Gazzy asked. Or just ugly mutant steroid dogs, Fang said. The things were hideous, their furless pink skin wrinkled and speckled with flaky black spots. Their massive heads were too big for their bodies. Which, of course, meant bigger teeth, stronger jaws. Are they sort of hyena-ish? I asked. Either way, they look rabid, and they're bad news. With our luck, it made perfect sense that these hellbeasts were the only other creatures that seemed to have survived the apocalypse, and that they somehow were thirty stories up a skyscraper, running loose in the hallways, ready to corner us. I quickly took stock. Small, windowless room? Check. Useless weapons, such as plastic cutlery? 
Check. Villains engineered specifically to destroy us? To be determined. The first hellhound flattened its ears and bared its teeth, a low growl building in its throat. Even with me standing on the countertop, their heads came up nearly to my waist. And they were vicious. This was Cujo meets Marmaduke, meets the Hound of Baskervilles. How many? Fang asked quickly. I barely heard him over the high-pitched whining, low growling, and eager, hungry barking. Uh, somewhere between five and, like, twenty, I said as more flat, slick heads pushed in through the doorway. What are they waiting for? Gezi asked. Maybe we can intimidate them. With a roar of his own, he snapped open his ten-foot wings, sending bits of crud flying. And this seemed to be what the animals were waiting for. Their attack instinct kicked in, and they sprang to life, crashing through the doorway at us, teeth bared. Their growls became a frenzied, barking hysteria that was deafening in the tiny room. I fended them off okay at first, with roundhouse kicks and evasive pivots. But then a particularly ugly beast, with pink eyes, reared up on its hind legs and dug its front claws into my chest, and the full weight of a 200-pound animal made me stagger sideways. I barely heard a sharp hiss from Fang, as one of them sank its incisors deep into his shoulder, but I couldn't spare a glance. I had a huge snapping muzzle inches from my face. Its tongue slobbered over its teeth in desperation, and its pink eyes bulged, crazed with hunger. They were starving. For a second, I felt a wave of pity for them. But just for a second. In a choice between me and something else, I always choose me. So I gripped Pinky's lower jaw with my hands and headbutted the mutt right between the eyes. It skidded like an ungainly bowling pin into the giants behind it, but they weren't down for long and when they sprang to their feet, there was a new hatred in their eyes. Hang on, Max! We're coming! I snapped my head around to see Nudge and Akila pushing their way through the entrance. Nudge was wielding a dust chair in one hand and a marble statuette in the other. I'd never seen Akila look so fierce. She was snarling, her teeth bared, and seemed so much more dog-like than she had, say, at her wedding. But even though Akila was fairly big, she was dwarfed by these monsters. Nudge! No! I yelled. Find a safe place. I gave one vicious kick to my closest attacker, and then grabbed for the sink hose behind me. Slamming the water on full blast, I sprayed all around, aiming for eyes, ears, and open mouths. The barking and howling hit with a higher pitch. On the other side of the kitchen, Gazzy fended the animals off as best he could, which was pretty dang good. But he was covered in bites and scratches, and looked like he was starting to tire. One vicious hellhound dove for him, huge jaws open like a vice. I quickly sprayed icy water into its ear, and Akila snarled and dove at the creature, tearing into its throat. Her fur was stained with blood, and more blood dripped from her mouth. She looked pure wolf in that instant, and as they leaped, her cry pierced the air. I lashed out however I could. The sprayer, karate chops to noses, hard kicks to the ribs, and, yes, plastic forks to the ears. Anything to hold them back, but they just kept coming. Max! Nudge cried, and I watched, horrified, as one leaped at the side of her face and clamped down with those long, yellow teeth, tearing flesh from bone. Fang stabbed at it with a knife, and it yelped and jumped back. Nudge stumbled into the fridge, her eyes wide and dazed. She held one hand over the left side of her face, but blood ran through her fingers and spilled down her shirt. Fang gave one animal a brutal punch to the face that made it yelp and fall back. 
My own arms and legs were pretty torn up, and I started to wonder if there were actually just too many of them. So, I did what you're never supposed to do in a dogfight. I charged. And then, the room exploded. Before I got to Nudge's attacker, chunks of plaster shot toward me as one of the walls blew inward. For just an instant, there was a silence as we all stared at the destroyed wall in surprise. Iggy stood in the hallway, waving dust away from his face. Goal! He yelled, choking on smoke. While the beasts were still stunned, Fang grabbed Akila and I reached for Gazi's and Nudge's hands. We freaking ran. Another floor-shaking blast made a few more of the creatures fall back, but there were plenty of them still on our heels as we ran through the maze-like hallways, searching for a way, any way, out of this. Then straight ahead of us, we saw a conference room lined with big, glass windows, and there was no time to hesitate. Abandoned ship! I shouted. Just as the monsters ran at the corner behind us, I closed my eyes, tucked my head, and crashed through a window, feeling the shards explode around me. Hey, and thanks for listening to another episode of Maximum Crime, a Maximum Raid Bootleg audiobook podcast thing. I am your all of it, Mark. And we got some responses on the Spotify Q&A thing. The first one was from Emily, who said, Thank you for using my song suggestion for the intro. I can't believe that we are now into forever. I'm feeling it was just yesterday that you were reading the angel experiment. Yeah, thank you, Emily. Um, yeah, honestly, I like it when you guys suggest stuff for the intros, because then I don't have to pick a song. Uh, I can just go usually with whatever you guys pick, which is very appreciated. Um, yeah, no... I still can't believe I started this podcast in 2020 like that. Just absolutely blows my mind. I didn't really think I'd make it this far with it, but I'm very glad to have done that. Uh, so we just have three more books left. Wow. And then we get to figure out what to do after that. But that is a problem for later me. But yeah, thank you so much, Emily. The second one was from Axolotl. They said, it's okay that you didn't use my song that I suggested. I'm so excited to keep listening. This pod was second on my list. I love this pod and FNAF. Thank you, Axolotl. Like I said, still keep suggesting stuff, because I will probably use it for one of the next books. I know I had a song picked out for Hawk, and I don't remember what the song was, so we're going to figure that out later. But Like I said, still love suggestions. But yeah, I... <laughs> It's really nice for my ego that you guys keep telling me that I was, like, really high up on your Spotify raps and stuff. It's always really nice to know that people enjoy the time and effort that I'm putting into this podcast. But yeah, thank you so much, Axolotl. Also, I'm sorry if there's uh, some kind of weird background noise. My cat is sitting basically on my microphone, purring up a storm, and she won't move. And I every time I move her, she jumps back up here, so sorry about that. <laughs> Uh, also, we got a message on the Tumblr, and it was from Warm Rice Hot Tea, who said, Hey Mark, hopefully you're still active here, since I see you haven't reblogged or posted anything in a while. Just wanted to say thank you for reviving my childhood. Recently saw the prequel movie Songbirds and Snakes, and that sent me on a rabbit hole journey of my old faves from middle school to early high school books. And Maximum Right is the number one. So when I found this, I was like, Perfect! It's only been a few weeks, but I've blasted through, and I'm currently listening to Max. Huge kudos to your self-production and increase in production value. I know it's long and often thankless work on most days, but it's been such a great time. 
and a cringy time getting to experience these books again. Thank you so much for all the work you've put in. And I gotta say, that one almost made me cry. I was kind of having a rough day, and that that helped a lot. Uh, I really appreciate you sending me a message, reaching out like that. Yeah, I kind of had that when I was in college, too, where I was like, oh man, what was that book series I used to I used to read all the time in middle school? And I looked it up, and there's an active fan base on Tumblr. And that kind of drove me back into it. But it's nice to go back and kind of revisit things from your childhood, even if it doesn't completely hold up all the way. Um, it's still fun to kind of think back about how much fun you had with it. Like, uh, for me, it's a lot of, uh, like, making OCs with my friends. And yeah, this is kind of the book series that got me started on making characters, uh, really bumped me up into focusing more on art and stories and stuff. And, you know, the book series may not be good, but it's special to me and I like it. Also, yes, I have kind of completely abandoned the Tumblr, uh, unfortunately. Um, I just kept forgetting to post episodes and then, oops. Um, but it's still a good place for people to send messages if they don't have Spotify or don't know how to use the Spotify Q&A thing like I don't. But yeah, I was planning to, once I had everything up, just to post links to the supercuts and a link to the Spotify or other podcatchers where you can listen to it. But yeah, this has been like a really fun project. Uh, I came into this knowing literally nothing about voice acting or production or microphones or literally any of that. And now it's kind of one of my favorite subjects to talk about when people ask. Like, I really enjoy talking about specs and uh, like how to do voices and stuff. Um, I'm not great at it, but you know, it's fun. Like I said, this is a fun project for me. I'm not getting paid. Nobody expects anything. It's just a hobby. But I really am thankful for everything that I've learned from doing all this for like three years. Oh my gosh, three years. Oh man. Thank you so much, Warm Rice Hot Tea. Uh, I really appreciate you listening and taking time to write out like a really nice long message for me. Alrighty, let's move on to the recommendation for this week. This week's recommendation is the TV series Percy Jackson and the Olympians. So, I figure most of you have heard of this before, but, you know, I like to talk about things that I enjoy. Uh, my partner was actually the one that was more excited for this than me, and she was super, super, super excited. So we watched it together uh, last night when it came out, and I really enjoyed it. So Percy Jackson and the Olympians is based off the book of the same name, and it's about 12-year-old demigod Percy Jackson, who is a troubled kid in school. He has ADHD and dyslexia, and just no matter what he does, just can't stay out of trouble at school. None of it is ever his fault, but nobody ever believes him when he says weird stuff happens to him all the time. So Percy's mom tells him that he is actually a demigod, a half-god, half-human and she sends him to a special camp for kids like him called Camp Half-Blood, where children of gods train and learn how to survive as demigods. When Percy gets to the camp, the sky god Zeus accuses him of stealing his master lightning bolt, and Percy is given one week to go and find the lightning bolt and return it, or else Zeus is going to start a huge war with the gods, which is going to be bad for everyone. <laughs> 
a lot of people were really nervous about this because there was a Percy Jackson movie. There were two Percy Jackson movies, actually. Um, and they were both very, very bad. They changed a lot of details that they didn't need to. And it just, it was just really not very good. But luckily, this one is very good. They changed a couple small details, but it was nothing like game-breaking like uh, the movies did. Uh, so far, there's only two episodes out, and they are both fantastic. We watched it on Disney+, Plus, but I also believe it's also on Hulu. So yeah, that is Percy Jackson and the Olympians. I will leave a link to the... I'm gonna say IMDb page in the uh, show notes. So if you want to check that out, and I think you should, you should uh, go there. If you want to get in contact with me, you can email me at MaximumCrimePod at gmail.com or hit me up on my Tumblr over at Maximum-Crime-Pod. And if you want to leave a rating review, that would be super cool of you to do. Alrighty, that's all I gotta say for this time. So, until next time, fly on. <laughs>